Well, hello everybody again. Welcome back. Um, podcast number three. Um, in the first couple of podcasts, we dealt with um, in the beginning the first few verses in Genesis chapter one, the tohu vavohu, the chaos and desolation as a description of conditions in the world before God then said, "Let there be light." Well, there's various ways of reading the Bible. Um, most people who pick up a Bible for the first time to read it through will probably tackle it just like any other book and start at the very beginning in Genesis, and that's fine. Um, however, in terms of chronology, the story goes back even further than Genesis chapter 1. There are events recorded in the Bible that are before the creation story. And I want to focus on these events now and then follow the line or the fallout, you could say, from those events through into the accounts of mankind. So, let's go back now to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And a very quick look at the whole of the chapter. The chapter begins with some comforting words spoken by the prophet to Israel. Isaiah 14. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say... And so then the chapter from verse 4 goes into this taunt against the king of Babylon, which I'll uh, pick up now. How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased... The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, Even you have been made weak as we. You've become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. So, I think I've said this a number of times before, but I am not a Bible scholar, in the sense of someone who knows the original languages that these words are written in, or can do detailed and in-depth textual analysis. I do believe that those abilities can be really useful in getting more out of these texts, but I think it would be a mistake to claim that only people with those abilities can derive useful spiritual meanings out of the text. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that in this chapter, Isaiah chapter 14, from verse 12 onwards, 
it seems that we're suddenly switching to a different quality or a different dimension. The previous verses have been describing a very earthbound perspective. An earthly ruler brought very low. The earth and the regions below the earth with the references to Sheol. Now from verse 12, the scenery gets much bigger and higher. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Well, who is the star of the morning or the son of the dawn? Well, the King James translators weren't in any doubt about this. They rendered verse 12 thus. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Well, this is something I'll come back to in just a moment. But to continue the text from verse 13, here come five I wills in a row. Five times in a row, um, the, king or, uh, the king of Babylon says, I will. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So, back to this question, who is the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn? Well, as I mentioned, the King James Bible is in no doubt translating star of the morning as Lucifer, the name for Satan in his original persona. Some people disagree, though, and say, nope, you're reading too much into the text. It's just the king of Babylon, as it says at the start of the passage. Well, despite not being any kind of Bible scholar, I'm convinced personally that Isaiah 14 and verse 12 the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn, is a reference to Lucifer. And to anyone who says, come on, it's just about the king of Babylon, clear as day, why do you have to give it some other meaning? Well, I'd say that Ezekiel chapter 28 helps us in regard to this. So the book of Ezekiel, a bit further on from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 28, again a bit of context. The first ten verses of Ezekiel are words of very strong rebuke to someone referred to by the prophet as the leader of Tyre. The rebuke centres around the fact that this leader, whoever he is, has become very proud of his power and abilities. And it's mentioned a few times that he's saying to himself that he's God and not just a man. However, from verse 11 onwards, just as in the Isaiah 14 reading, the scene seems to change, and in this reading, although the king of Tyre is still the person being addressed, it becomes very clear now that someone else is also being referred to. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, 
and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So, I think that in both of those passages, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, although the prophet begins by addressing someone who sounds like an earthly king, the description goes on to describe an amazing-sounding angelic being, the anointed and covering cherub on the holy mountain of God, walking in the midst of the stones of fire, having the seal of perfection and perfect in beauty. So, I do think, therefore, that it's entirely reasonable for the King James translators to give the King of Babylon the name Lucifer in Isaiah 14. So, let's shift now back to Genesis and Genesis chapter 3, right at the start of the Bible. Now, this is the story commonly known as the Fall. Satan now appears to Eve initially in the form of a serpent, and it's interesting to note how he goes about it getting Eve involved in a discussion, for a start. Well, just because somebody wants to discuss something with you doesn't mean that you necessarily have to discuss it with them. Discussion isn't a bad thing, of course. There are many situations in life when we sit down and thrash things out with somebody to reach some kind of a conclusion or agreement. However, discussion with people who have no good intent is something that shouldn't be embarked on. For example, discussing things with narcissists is usually a waste of time. You end up going round and round in circles, getting very frustrated, and the narcissist in question manages to get you to be on the defensive all the time. Well, perhaps Satan could be described as the ultimate narcissist here, pretending to care for Eve and her freedom and self-expression. You probably know the story. God had set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and spoken out only one prohibition. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gave this instruction to Adam, but the serpent, or Satan, approaches Eve with his initial question. Have you ever been in a discussion with somebody and they seem never to really be listening to what you're saying because they constantly quote you on things that you never actually said? It's usually by saying, taking something that you did say and repeating it inaccurately to give it a completely different meaning. 
Satan does this in his initial approach to Eve. He asks her, Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Of course, he knows perfectly well that that's not what God said. Eve corrects him, however, in verse 2 and 3. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Satan counters with these words. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That phrase he used, you will be like God, sounds familiar, and is exactly the same phrase that came up in that passage from Isaiah 14 that I just read. Remember, Lucifer, the beautiful covering cherub, the majestic angelic being is second only to God. But even that isn't enough. And at the climax of his five I wills in Isaiah 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So it's not surprising then that the serpent says pretty much the same thing to Eve, even though he knows perfectly well that it's a dead end leading to misery. You too will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course, we all know that, tragically, Eve and then Adam listened to the serpent or Satan and ate the forbidden fruit. A great deal could be said about that, but I'll leave that for another episode for another time. However, there is at least one other episode of Satan trying to tempt somebody in the Bible this time without success. So we're going to flip over to the New Testament now and the Gospel of Luke. Luke in the New Testament and chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me... It will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, I suppose you could say, Why is Jesus discussing with the devil if we're saying that Eve shouldn't have listened to him or discussed with him? Well, perhaps this confrontation with or interaction with Satan was part of Jesus' mission here on the earth. Maybe there's something about this interaction that shows us something about the nature of the devil and the nature of Jesus. At any rate, Satan, who'd been originally unhappy with his place as number two under God, is still trying to achieve this aim of being number one even now. He tries to tempt Jesus by showing him all the attraction, sophistication and glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. 
perhaps not bound up only in that time, but perhaps seeing a glimpse of all of the glories of all kingdoms and civilizations from all times, including our own. The price for all of that would be that Jesus would bow down and worship him, Satan, thus fulfilling Satan's obsession with being number one. Not for the sake of any good he might imagine he could do with it, but being number one just for its own sake. A quick question here. Are you an ambitious kind of a person? What kind of ambitions do you have? And more importantly, what are the motivations for those ambitions? I don't know if you've read the Lord of the Rings books by Tolkien or seen the film series, but if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that the plot centres around a special ring that was forged, and whoever has it in his or her possession will have pretty much unlimited power. And the aim of the main character in the film is to destroy the ring in the only place it can be destroyed, and the resulting very long, difficult and dangerous journey they have to undertake in order to be able to do that. There are some characters who want to keep the ring, not for any clear or practical reason necessarily, just because it's worked its magic on them, and they desire it simply because they desire it. Others want to take the ring because they imagine that with the resulting power, they'll be able to drive away the dark enemy armies and set up a better world. And the relatively few wise people in the story know that this is an illusion. The power will simply corrupt them, and they'll become even worse than the dark forces that they've done away with. Well, we all need some kind of vision, some kind of perspective, and I don't think it's bad to take something that you have, some kind of ability or capacity, and want to invest time and energy in it, to grow it, and so that in that sense you have certain ambitions, you could say. But the ambition to gain power, just for the sake of gaining power, is a very dangerous vision. This can be carried out on a very small scale. Power-mad people don't always lead entire nations. We've probably all suffered at some time or other under bad leaders in the world of work who've achieved management positions out of sheer hunger for power. And they usually make life miserable for everybody under them. Power hungry too can make life absolutely miserable, on the smallest scales too, as anyone who's had a close relationship or even a marriage perhaps with someone who's turned out to be power hungry or a narcissist will be able to tell you. Well, I always like to bring these little podcasts back to the person of Jesus. So let's have a look at the person of Jesus from this perspective. One of the reasons that Jesus came to this earth was to destroy the works of the evil one, that is, Satan. In John 1, or in 1 John, the first letter of John, chapter 1, we read, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The various different ways that Jesus coming to this world in order to destroy the works of the devil are very interesting and important, and could take up a whole series of podcasts. But I'd like to focus in on just one aspect of this. 
One way that Jesus destroys the works of the devil in his time on earth is to teach that the way of Jesus is the way of true humility and self-sacrificing love and service, in contrast with the way that Satan is obsessed with power for its own sake. No matter how much he uses charm, clever-sounding words, and false promises of self-fulfillment and freedom. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we read about an incident in which the disciples began arguing. Luke 22, starting from verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So I believe that this exchange between Jesus and his disciples was far more important than just a, a little exchange about what good character is. Without realising it, perhaps, when the disciples started arguing about who is the greatest, they were also on that same terrible pathway as Lucifer, the son of the dawn, when he said in his heart, I will, I will, I will finishing up with the I will be as God. One of the things that the disciples have to learn is the contrasting way of humility and seeking the welfare of the other. If the disciples learn all kinds of stuff about signs and wonders, casting out devils, raising the dead and so on, but don't appreciate the absolute importance of rejecting Satan's I will attitude, then all is effectively lost, because arguably of all tyrants, the religious tyrant is the worst. Well, I'd like to draw to a close now with some words from Philippians. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not doing things from conceit or selfishness, as the passage describes here, is, I believe, about much more than just being kind to one another, essential though that is. I think it's also about recognising that when we do the opposite, when we act out some kind of ambition to be the number one or the top dog or whatever you want to call it, we're actually going the same way of Lucifer at the very beginning. And the way of Lucifer never leads to peace, joy or true love between, shall we say, at the very basic level, a man and a woman in a marriage or among a circle of friends or a church or a society, but leads to the marring and ultimately the destruction of everything that is good and right. It sets people against one another in wars and all manner of conflict. And worst of all, it means that we become completely unsuitable as places where God himself will want to dwell or live through his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Being humble is not really something that can be achieved overnight, but is a process consisting of many smaller decisions along the way. Caring for one another, listening to one another, serving and helping one another is vital. Not just to be nice people, but because it's the way of Jesus, who we're supposed to be loving and serving. And remember, Jesus has been given the highest name, not because he grabbed hold of it, but because he went the way of the cross for us. And according to Philippians, one day we all are going to bow the knee before him and speak out the truth that he is Lord in order to glorify God the Father. <laughs>